It's nice to be back with you. It's been a while, but uh, I'm a good friend of JP's. Just met uh, Brian last week, and and uh, he seems like he's doing a great job and everything. And uh, I've been a friend of JP's though for about 15 years, and uh, known him since he was a little furry hobbit youth pastor here. And now he's all kind of grown up, and, and it's it's great to see. It's great to see. Um, a little bit about myself so that you kind of get a feel for the kind of preaching that I do. If you've not heard me before, uh, I am, I've been married for 27 years, yes, to the same woman, and I have three girls, ages uh, 12 and 14 and soon to be 16. That means that I live in the estrogen palace. I'm a minority in a sorority. And, you know, that means there's lots of pain and suffering going on in my life right now. But God uses that to teach me some really cool stuff. And one of the things that I've been learning here is that love is complicated. Now, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm making that up. Maybe it's just my experience. But is there anyone else out there who kind of feels... Love is a complicated thing. Anybody? Yes, there are honest people out there. That's very good. Very, very good. Okay. One of the reasons that love seems so complicated, I think, is because it's a word that we use to describe so many different things. In fact, I submit to you that on any given day, the word love has about a thousand different definitions. Let me give you an idea. We say we love pizza. We say we love the Red Sox, especially after last night, right? Oh, that was really good. We love to laugh. We love to cook. We love our mom and dad. We love our husband or our wife. We love our neighbor as ourself. We love God. Now, love, don't you see, in each of those instances means something a little bit different, right? Let me kind of illustrate this for you. Um, I want you to lean over to the person next to you and repeat these words. I don't want you to think about the words. I just want you to repeat them, okay? Just turn to the person next to you, turn to the person on your right and say, I love you like I love pizza. You hear that? That laughter? You know why people are laughing? It's because you know you're not supposed to love your husband, your wife, or your neighbor like it, with the same love with which you love pizza. It's a different kind of thing. Now, in light of this, my question for us this morning is, the next slide, okay, what does that spiritual love that God wants us to have for one another look like? Do we know what that love is? Do we know the definition of that particular love? What does the love that God has for us, the kind of love that he wants us to have for one another, look like in real life? Now, Paul answers that for us really nicely in this scripture that we are looking at this morning, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. We've all heard this before. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard it lots of times. Being a pastor, everybody wants this passage, and, you know, and I totally get it. Because if you can love like this, it's 
amazing. Now, I'm going to read this to you again because I want us to really be focused on this passage with our time together this morning. So starting at verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always, always perseveres. Now, would you agree with me that that kind of love, what I just read, is very simple and straightforward and easy to understand, right? What I mean is, we all know what kind means, right? Love is kind. We all, we don't need, you don't need me to explain what kindness is to you, right? Patience, we all know what patience is. You don't need me to, that's what I mean. You don't, there's no hidden Greek words here, you know, that you need some kind of deep theologian to explain this passage. It's really straightforward, okay? The challenge is not in understanding what spiritual love is. The challenge is living it. That's what makes love complicated. It isn't understanding what it is. It's understanding how to live it out. And one of the things I've been learning as I've been studying this passage, this definition of love, is that love is shown by self-control. I see self-control in the background of that entire definition. And what I want to do is kind of flesh out that idea so that you kind of uh, see what I mean, all right? Now, the first thing we want to do as I start talking about this is maybe talk a little bit about what self-control actually is. What is self-control? Okay? All right, we're going to keep moving. What's the next slide there? Can you move it for me? Because this is, there's the point. Love is shown by self-control. What is self-control? Self-control means to have control of yourself. <laughs> you weren't expecting anything deeper than that, were you? I mean, the original Greek for self-control is self-control. I, I can't help it. It means to have control of yourself. It means to have control of your thoughts and your actions and your words, your aspirations. That's what it means. It means to be in control of what you say and do. All right? So... Again, we all know what it is. How do we live it out? Why is self-control so important to love? Because people are not always easy to love. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I the only person with difficult people in my life? Okay, thank you. Just make you look, it's hot. Okay, we're all sticky. You're going to have a hard time paying attention, so I'm going to do things to include you in what I'm doing. I'm going to ask you questions, and I want you to respond so that I know you're still awake and not dying of heat stroke. Okay, so people are hard to love sometimes. Raise your hand. Yes. Okay, we all know that. Very good. All right. Someone once said that original sin is the only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. Truer words have not been spoken. 
On any given day, all of us can attest to the fact that people can be hurtful, self-serving, manipulative, nitpicky, prideful, thumb-sucking, spoiled brats. Right? I've got three girls. I know this is true. Okay? That's what middle school teaches you. <laughs> all right? Um, and the second thing is, lest we start thinking that the problem is all out there with them and not in here, too, with us, we need to be learning that it's not natural for us to love our neighbor as ourself. Okay? Our nature is to give love to people who we think deserve it. It's our nature to give love to people who we think have earned it. That's what we like to do. That's what our nature is. But when people disappoint, and they do, right? When people blow up, when they don't listen, when they don't show respect, loving people the way that Jesus loves us becomes really hard, doesn't it? And it becomes costly. How is self-control important to love them? Okay? We need self-control for three reasons. And we're going to use, as we do these three things, we're going to be walking right through this passage that we've been looking at. We need self-control first to hold back. For instance, being patient requires that we hold back from the natural impulse to In fact, the only time you really can be showing and growing patience is when the temptation is there to not be patient. Right? Okay, I don't know about you, but I, I've never needed lessons on being impatient. I've never needed uh, how-to books or role models to envy what other people have to boast in my own achievements, to take pride in myself or to dishonor others. I don't need help being self-serving people. That all comes naturally to me. I'm just being honest. I'm, you're standing there, son. I'm just being honest about myself, okay? I can get angry with the best of them. I find myself naturally adept at holding on to wrongs and smiling when bad things happen to my enemies. You know? And if you're honest with yourself, you know you are too. That's why you're laughing at me. That's why you're smiling at me. You know it's true for you. And that's what makes it funny, ironically. Okay? Now, we're more bent to excel at some of those lousy things than others of those lousy things. But the reality is, that's where we're at. Our nature is to drown out and shout out and lash out rather than to hold back and flex the muscles of self-control so that we can love one another. Does that make sense? You following along? You can say yes. Okay, it doesn't mean we're in a charismatic church. You can say yes. All right, the second reason is we not only need to have the discipline to hold back, okay, we need to have the discipline too so that we're not holding back some of the things that love is. For instance, we need to be disciplining ourselves to give kindness and to give it freely and willingly 
even to people who we feel don't deserve it, even to people who we are sure are not going to appreciate it or reciprocate it. And that's hard. That's stuff that we need to push out. Okay? We need to hold back emotional responses to the wrong things so that we can be building the strength to show the emotional responses to the right things. Love doesn't delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. Let me tell you, it is very hard. It is very hard to rejoice in the truth of God's love for you, in the truth of His forgiveness and grace, and rejoice in the truth of His holiness when you delight in the things that are contrary to love. And third, we need self-control to keep from giving up and giving in. This is the, the kind of love that Paul is talking about in this passage is very personal, it's very costly, and I'll be honest, sometimes it really hurts. There isn't always a clear return on your investment. And because of that, love can be hard, and therefore, it takes serious self-control to hang in there when things are dark, to keep hanging on when things are messy, to keep hanging in there when things are painful, it takes self-control to protect, to trust, to hope, and to persevere when we can't see where we're going. Or when we can't understand why we're not going, as the case may be. Does that make sense? Do those three things make sense to you? All right, so we're all on the same page. All right, so how do you learn self-control? We've talked about what it is, why it's important to love. Now we need to talk a little bit about how you learn self-control. You don't learn self-control by reading about it or hearing about it. In fact, I am honest enough to say, there are many pastors that are as honest as I am to say this, but I'm honest enough to say that this sermon, my sermon here on self-control, is not going to help you learn self-control one bit. You say, well, why did Brian and JP bring you in here to teach us about self-control if you can help us grow self-control? Well, I was wondering that myself. But the reality is, okay, you can't learn self-control by hearing about it. Being here and listening to this sermon later is not gonna help you grow self-control because nobody's that good, all right? You learn self-control by practicing it, not by learning about it. Kind of like golf. You're never gonna get good at golf watching Tiger Woods golf. You could get good if you actually played golf. You see the difference? You see the difference? Okay. So you learn self-control by practicing it. So, God is going to teach you self-control. This is a fruit of the Spirit. He's going to teach you self-control by putting you in places where you need to use it. So, don't be surprised if you continually find yourself, like myself sometimes, faced with people and problems and situations that test the limits of your self-control. 
because that's how you learn. God isn't mad at you. God isn't, you know, upset. He's not getting you back for things that you did when you were in sixth grade. And he's getting, you you know. No, he's trying to grow the spiritual fruit of self-control in you. Now, self-control is this fruit of the Spirit. You guys know that. You've been studying this for a while. And that means it's something that's grown by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural thing. It's a fruit. It's a proof that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. The Spirit is intentionally growing this and the other fruits of the Spirit in your life. That's what it naturally does. It's going to be working on growing these things in you. And it doesn't need our help doing it. It's gonna, the Spirit is going to do that on its own. Okay? Self-control is something, however, that it, 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 while it's being grown by the Holy Spirit, it's not something that happens independently of what you say and do. Self-control is a discipline that you learn as you're learning to walk with the Spirit and work with the Spirit. And therefore, learning self-control is something that's very intentional that we have to be about. Okay? If you've ever tried to garden or grow things, you kind of get an idea of what I'm talking about. Has anyone ever tried that? Even if you fail, you can say you've tried <laughs> to grow plants, garden stuff. Okay, we often talk about gardeners and farmers like they grow things. They grow this, they grow that. That really isn't true, is it? The reality is the seed or the crop or the tree grows all on its own. What the farmer does is it does everything it can to assist that seed or that plant so that it does what it does naturally. You feed the soil, you till it, you weed it, you get rid of the rocks, you make sure that it's watered, and then the seed, the plant, the tree, whatever, grows on its own. Does that make sense? That's kind of like the relationship that we have with the Spirit as He's growing the fruits of the Spirit in us. He's going to do it, but it will happen better for us, and we will see more fruits of those fruits if we are working with the Holy Spirit by cultivating and tilling our hearts and minds and our behaviors so that those fruits grow naturally. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some of the things we need to do then if we're going to be intentional about it. And the first thing we need to be intentional about doing is submitting. Self-control requires submission to Jesus and to Jesus' teaching and his yoke. In Matthew 11, verses 29 and 30, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what yoke means. It means that it means following Jesus' interpretation of and practice of Scripture. That's what yoke means in that passage. So it means following him as his disciple. It means listening to Him. It means conducting yourself in the truth while responding to others in grace. Whether you think that's the right thing to do or not. 
whether you agree with Jesus at a given point or not. It takes self-control to submit to what he says is the right thing to do. Now, let me take a moment here and tell you that there's a big difference between submission and surrender. We love to sing about surrender. I don't know any songs about submission, though. All right? But the reality is the Bible talks about submission to God, to Jesus, to Scripture. Okay? Let me kind of give you the difference. If somebody controls me, somebody who has authority and they can exercise it over me and say, I'm going to make you lose weight by exercising and changing what you eat. And they've got control. I, I have to surrender to that. Okay? And so I'm being controlled by that person and they change. So I, am I going to lose weight? Yeah. Am I going to exercise? Yeah. But there's a big difference between having that happen and saying, I want to submit myself to that person to help me lose weight by changing how I eat and exercising. And I'm going to do what they say because that's what I want to have happen. That's submission. You see the difference? If all we do is surrender, then we surrender when things are a problem. We surrender when it's painful. We surrender when we don't have a choice. But when that pain or pressure is gone, let's bring out the ice cream, baby. It's going right back in there. Enough with this surrendering stuff. But when it's submission, we're going to keep going. That's a little why a lot of these diets and exercise things and, frankly, gym memberships don't, don't work. Because as soon as the pressure is gone, the pain is gone, because we haven't submitted, we go right back to our old ways. So while it may look on the surface like, sub, like, like surrendering produces self-control, if that surrender never becomes submission, it's going to be short-lived. And we're eventually going to go back to our own habits, our old habits. All right, that's enough of that. Let's go to the next point here. And that is that self-control requires us to be meek and humble. We have a natural inclination, I've been learning, to think more of ourselves than we should and less of others than we should. You know what I'm talking about. Yep, when we think we're right, we like it to show. And when we think others are wrong, we like them to know. <laughs> you know? And that's why you're laughing again, because you know it's true. Okay? When we approach people from a position of humility, though, we will be thinking about them more than of ourselves. That's what humility is. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less and thinking more about the needs of others. The next thing we need to be learning if we're going to be growing in self-control is wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to act on what you know. 
Wisdom is going to tell you that when it comes to love, sometimes the right thing to do is to speak out. And sometimes the right thing to do is to say nothing at all. That discretion is the better part of valor in a particular case. Wisdom will bring discernment about what the loving thing is to say or do at a particular time or situation. Because what may be loving to one person in one situation may really be hurtful and unloving to another person in another situation. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, one of the places that I have been learning this is that when I've been learning the importance of self-control is when it comes to what I say or don't say. Does anyone else have this problem? Am I the only one here? Just raise your hand. Make me feel good, okay? All right. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Well, if that's true, if that's something that we really need to be living our life by, then we need to be learning to exercise self-control in what we say. I don't know about you, but it is so easy for me to blurt out negative, critical, self-serving stuff. And it's our words, more than anything else, that are going to choke out and kill the growth of love in our heart. James went so far as to say that those who consider themselves religious and yet don't keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Proverbs 15 verse 4 says, The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. What we say has incredible power. Whoever said, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me, was very misled. How many times have we heard in the news about a person committing suicide because of what their so-called friends said about them on social media? But all of us, I hope at least, all of us have experienced what it's like to have someone speak just the right words at just the right time. We don't forget that, do we? We don't forget the life that those words breathed into us. Love grows in the hearts of those who speak in such a way as to bring life to people. Now, I found a great tool in uh, R.T. Kendall's book, Total Forgiveness, that I want to share with you as I close this sermon. So we're almost done. Hang in there. Okay, if you have the self-control to use this, if you use this as a tool to kind of grow your self-control, this is going to be really good. It's going to strengthen your ability to love others well, and it's going to strengthen your ability to show your love for God more. Okay, he made an acrostic out of the word need, and he wants you to ask yourself before you say something to somebody who has hurt you, or has angered you, or has really messed you up, or you think is a thumb sucker for whatever reason, ask yourself, does this person really need to hear what I say? And if you do this, this is going to really make it a whole lot better for you and for the person that you are speaking to.
And the N in need stands for necessary. Is it really necessary to say this? Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Is it really necessary for you to say what you want to say? Can you live with it? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Is it really necessary for them to hear what you want to say? Or is it that you are more arguing that it's necessary for you to say it? That you are rationalizing in your heart that I need to say this. Not so much that you need to hear it, but I need to say it. And when you're doing that, when you're rationalizing yourself, like you need to remember what the definition of rationalize means. You know what rationalize means? It means to tell yourself rational lies. We need to remember Proverbs 11, verse 12. Whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue. Sometimes, I've been learning, the loving thing to do when somebody does something stupid or hurtful or they're wrong is to say nothing. Now that's almost harder than saying something gracious. <laughs> I willingly admit that. But we so much like strutting our stuff, pointing out mistakes, getting the last word. But the one who has understanding knows how to hold their tongue. Is it really necessary? Now that first E, that first E stands for encourage. Is it going to encourage them? Is what you say going to encourage them? Is it going to make them feel better? Is it going to make them feel like they want to change? That they want to address the issue that you're talking about? Is it going to encourage them to attack it? That should be our motivation. Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Is what we're going to say going to encourage the person to do that? Or are they going to really be just discouraged by what we say? Because if that's all that happens, nothing's going to change. You know what I'm saying? That second E stands for edify. Is what we're going to say going to edify that person? Is it going to build them up and make them stronger? Or is it simply going to tear them down? We know the difference, right? It's not like love can't be tough. It's not like we can't say hard things. But there's a big difference between saying something with the intent to build up and strictly with the intent to rip apart. In other words, is what you want to say meant to make him or her better? Or is it really meant to make you feel better? You see what I'm talking about? And D word there, D there stands for dignify. Will it dignify that person? Jesus treated other people with a sense of dignity. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is in heaven 
and he does whatever pleases him. Let me put some practical application on that verse for you. That means that every person here, every person who just went to Sunday school in the back, every man, woman, and child in this world today was made because God pleased to make them. God knit your soul together out of nothing. He did the same thing with the person sitting to your left and to your right. He did the same thing with everybody who's here in church today, who's listening to this message today. God created you for Him because it pleased Him to do so. Every single person. Why? Because God's in the heaven and the, the only thing He does is what He pleases. Right? Now think about it like this. Everything God does is an expression of His perfect love, of His wisdom, of His goodness, and His power. Would you agree with that? Okay. Now, the very fact that you're here in this worship service, the very fact that you may be listening to this sermon, implies that had not God created you, that expression of His glory would not be as perfect as He wanted it. You see that? Every man, woman, and child is a unique and necessary part of God's creation. And therefore, we should treat one another with dignity. And if the person you're speaking to is a brother or sister in Christ, they're one of God's anointed. Jesus died for that person. Are you treating them with the dignity that Jesus is treating them with? Now, if you can honestly say yes to those four things, then you can really be reasonably sure that you are in a right place, your motivations are right, the words you've picked are right, that you are in a position to really speak the truth and love to the person that you are wanting to address. But if you can't say yes to all those things, necessary, encourage, edify, dignify, then I would urge you to use your self-control and hold your tongue. Because you're not ready yet to say what needs to be said. You may need to go check your motivations. You may rethink how you want to say things. You may need to realize that you're not the person God wants saying that truth to that person. Somebody else may be better fit for that than you. But if you do that, if you exercise that self-control and you use this before you speak, it's going to go a long way in cultivating an atmosphere of love that people will be irresistibly pulled to. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for the gifts of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit that you are growing into our life. Lord, help us to be growing that self-control that we need. Help us to cultivate our minds and our hearts to work with you, to submit to you, to be humble before one another, to be growing in wisdom, 
so that we can be loving you better and loving each other better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.